Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today in Georgia, there was a series of arguments made in an open air rally in support of undoing an election result and impaneling a Trump slate of electors from that state. A ridiculous argument to be sure. Lawyer Lynn Wood made preposterous claims, including this about Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of the state. I want you to go to the governor's mansion. I want you to circle it. I want you to blow your horns until Brian Kemp comes out and orders a special session of the Georgia legislature. Get us our legislature and tell everybody we want our legislator to meet and we want him to fix the mess that he created. And then he can resign. And then as far as I'm concerned, lock him up. Well, the threat of being locked up, it's surely a disincentive to resign. No, I mean, even if he was on the fence and why wouldn't he be? Maybe this crazy lawyer with no credibility or standing calls on me to resign. All right, I'm going to, whoa, there's an angry mob outside. I'm definitely staying. It's not a well thought out threat. But I did want to point out that it is a trend. It is a trend these days. Not a new trend. It's been going on for a while, but I do see it more and more of people with no standing to say so calling on other people to resign. Well, wouldn't that be nice if your rivals all resigned? Senator Dianne Feinstein stepped down from leadership of the Judiciary Committee. Not enough for the Sunrise Movement, they say. Senator Feinstein is stepping down from judiciary leadership. Isn't enough. She must resign. Sure, if you say so. Definitely. The leaders of the Pennsylvania House and Senate, Republicans, called on the Democratic Secretary of State to resign a few weeks ago. Here was Kathy Bookvar's reaction when asked about it in a press conference. Sure. Well, I have no intent to resign, um, and I disagree with everything that they say in their release. Um, frankly, I think they're the ones that should resign. Me resign, you resign. You know what? Let's all resign. The call to resign is almost as forceful as the open letter, but with less need for typing. There are such things as votes of no confidence in some systems, or when a powerful person with leverage over the intended resignee calls for a resignation could carry some weight. But what's going on here is there is a person whose views or whose power I don't like, therefore I will call for their resignation. And why stop there, right? Why not also call for them to buy you a Hyundai Sonata on the way out? Call for their resignation, and then call that they learn green sleeves on harpsichord and play it at your granddaughter's bat mitzvah. Calls to resign by people with no standing to affect that resolution should be summarily ignored by the media, as they always are ignored by the intended targets. I am, however, resigned to such nonsense, but let's at least note it's total nonsense. You know what's not nonsense? Remembrances of things Trump. Today on Remembrances of Things Trump, let's not forget that whenever the issue of air power and windmills came up, 
the president never missed a chance to talk about the avian carnage caused by the technology. He was obsessed with the guillotine-like blades of the windmill. Here is a particularly rich example of the genre. He was talking to the conservative group Turning Points USA, and the subject of whirling blades came up. We'll have a... An economy based on wind. I never understood wind, and I know windmills very much. I've studied it better than anybody. He never understood that which he understands better than anyone else. Okay, fine. You know what? I shouldn't interrupt. This is about windmills, killing birds. Go on, sir. Yeah, and it's very expensive. They're made in China and Germany, mostly. Very few made here, almost none. But they're manufactured tremendous, if you're into this, tremendous fumes, gases, are spewing into the atmosphere. You know, we have a world, right? So the world is tiny compared to the universe. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon. Sorry, sorry, it's just so tempting to butt in, but I shouldn't. He was talking about windmills and the poor, poor birds, Mr. President. They're noisy, they kill the birds. You wanna see a bird graveyard? You just go, take a look, a bird graveyard? Go under a windmill someday. You'll see more birds than you've ever seen ever in your life. You know, in California, they were killing the bald eagle. If you shoot a bald eagle, they want to put you in jail for 10 years. A windmill will kill many bald eagles. It's true. And you know what? After a certain number, they make you turn the windmill off. That's true, by the way. This is, they make you turn it off after you. And yet, if you killed one, they put you in jail. That's okay. But why is it okay for these windmills to destroy the bird population? And that's what they're doing. So there are actually new statistics that do offer insight as to the scope of the problem. The final environmental impact statement from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lists as annual estimates for deaths of migratory birds that building glass slash collisions kill 599 million birds and then vehicles, 214 million down the list, communication towers, 6 million, oil pits, 750,000, wind turbine collisions cause 234,000 bird deaths. And that does seem like a lot, but you know what? You know what they list under that in its own little category? Cats. You know how many birds cats kill? Remember, wind, turbines, 234,000. Cats kill 2.4 billion, median estimate. The high estimate's 3.7 billion. So cats kill 10,000 times as many birds as windmills. And I would think Donald Trump would agree that the main point here is that Joe Biden is bringing a cat into the White House. That is like planting 10,000 windmills outside, say hello to a massive scale of bird death, the likes of which few people have ever seen. And this has been Remembrances of Trump Past. On the show today, I stick with that rally about the fake stolen vote in the real state, in real sorry state of Georgia. But first, we've been wondering what President Trump may be getting up to in the international and military arenas. Slate's Fred Kaplan is here to discuss the assassination of the head of the Iranian nuclear program and what other international forays our president may be considering in his last few days in office. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, 
is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, the interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. With only a few more weeks in office, how much damage can Donald Trump do? The answer, especially on the international and military stage, seems to be quite a lot. And maybe he has ambitions to shake things up. Who knows? Could be fits of peak. Joining me now to analyze the possibilities and probabilities is Fred Kaplan. He writes the War Stories column for Slate. He is the author of The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Hello, Fred. Welcome back. Hey, good to be here. So when I booked this interview a couple days ago, I did not know that the uh, head of the Iranian nuclear program would be assassinated, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Does this remind you of the Soleimani assassination in terms of risk and reward? Uh, In some ways, although, look, this was almost certainly a Mossad operation, Israeli intelligence Mm -hmm. service. I think I would be very surprised if they did not consult with Trump about it, just so he would know that it's happening. You know, remember back around 2010 to 2012, Mossad killed a number of Iranian nuclear scientists. And then the Stuxnet program happened, the joint U.S.-Israeli cyber offensive program to, you know, sabotage their nuclear facilities. And there weren't any more assassinations for a while because this was doing the job of delaying the program. And then there was the, the Iran nuclear deal, and then Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Now Iran has broken the limits set by that deal because we pulled out of it. And so I, I think that's mainly why Israel has probably revitalized this program. Now, whether by design or coincidence, this does make it harder for Biden when he comes into office to do what he said he wanted to do, which was to restart the Iran nuclear deal as quickly as possible. You know, as long as Iran came back into the limits, we would lift the sanctions again. This makes it much more difficult now in terms of Iranian politics. You know, Iran is facing an election in the next few months. Hardliners who never liked this deal are stating their opposition to it. So yeah, it could have been another thing to make life a lot more difficult for Biden when he comes into power. So I was thinking of these calculations, Fred, and I heard a general talking, making just that point. But I was thinking President Rouhani wants the deal. The hardliners don't. Everyone in Iran Iran knows that Biden wants the deal, but also realizes how American politics works and maybe thinks that if Biden loses an election in four years, it could be another person who tears up the deal. So I think given all that, I do wonder if that calculation would come into play 
and convince Mossad or Mossad along with uh, the United States acknowledgement, convince them to carry out the assassination one way or another. In other words, the assassination seems like a pretty solid gain and everything regarding the deal seems a little murky and less than 100%. Yeah, I think even if, if the political situation here were different and Israel had an opportunity to assassinate this guy, they would have done it. I mean, this is an elaborate operation. I mean, you, you might have read the details. Twelve gunmen were involved in this. Well, I heard stuff about remote control machine guns. It sounded like they end up breaking bad. This was elaborate. And, you know, the other thing about this, this is what must make the Iranian regime really nervous. This kind of stuff could not have happened without an inside collaborator. Right. Uh, and, you know, even Stuxnet, somebody had to plant that worm on the printer that was hooked up to the computers that were running the centrifuges. Everything that's been done to infiltrate and exfiltrate stuff from Iran has to involve some people pretty high up on the inside. And that, that's got to be making uh, any government very nervous. The last thing I want to ask, though, is, is it the case, I mean, this is how it was explained to me with Soleimani, that he really was a unique mastermind. And even though it is a system where he's a general, the general is killed, some lieutenant becomes a general. You know, people were making the case that it really could diminish. He was so, quote unquote, good at his job. It could diminish Iranian capacity to carry out terror. The same question I have about the head of the nuclear program. Are there so few experts within Iran that if you decapitate the head, it really does cripple their ambitions? You know, I, I don't know the details, but I would seriously doubt it. Uh, you know, they killed five or six nuclear scientists back in the day, and the program continued to go forward. You know, there are real physicists working with this guy on the program. It might slow it down a little bit. I think maybe the real thing, it could demoralize some of the scientists, but it could also rev up the morale of others. It, it's one of these, it's very hard to calculate. But, you know, all theories of decapitation, you know, it's called decapitation, you know, decapitate the leader and the whole thing falls apart. You know, unless you're talking about someone like Hitler, these decapitation theories have never really quite worked out. Uh, do you remember years ago, we, every every two weeks or so, we, we would be killing another number two or number three right. leader of Al-Qaeda. Like the drummers in Spinal Tap. Yeah, yes. exactly. But it <laughs> seemed that, that the next number two and number three, and it was often said, oh, well, the next guy, he's much younger and less experienced. But it turned out he was also a bit more of a fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's dangerous to play this game. I think what's going on here, I think, you know, the, the Iranians, you talked about the Iranians' calculations. They have another calculation. They really do need to have these uh, sanctions lifted. They're, they're in deep economic trouble. They also know that if they, if they pull off some massive retaliation sort of thing, like killing an Israeli scientist or, or bombing something, they're asking for it. They, they are not going to be able to win a military confrontation, a ladder of escalation. They're not going to ever be able to, to dominate that ladder of escalation in a sustained conflict with Israel or the United States. So it, it's a real dilemma for them. But, you know, one way to think about it is to think about what happens, if, you know, reverse the situation. If one of our big weapon scientists were assassinated, and, you know, and then you can imagine if we didn't do, if the president, whoever it was, didn't do anything, the, the hell that, that would, the fire and fury that would 
spill forth from the U.S. Senate and Congress. And, you know, it's different because we're a lot more powerful than, than Iran, and Iran is a lot weaker than us. Still, in terms of, of national pride and stuff like that, you know, it, it becomes a, a very challenging thing. The other thing that we should be thinking about, let's say that the regime collapses. This is what Trump and Pompeo like. Who's going to take their place? It's not going to be nice young Western Democrats. It's going to be the Revolutionary Guard. It's going to be the yeah. Most the, it's going to be the people. It's Iranian going to be the people with the guns and the weapons yeah. right now. And which, the right. other thing is support for the Iranian nuclear program, whatever it is intended to be or where it goes. It's a matter of great pride among the mass vast population, even of Iran. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, which they signed, allows them to enrich a certain amount of uranium, why should they be treated differently from any other country and have to dismantle everything? It, it's what we're trying to influence here doesn't recognize certain realities about Iranian politics, culture, history. Yeah. And just look at the region. Look at Arab Spring. It wiped away a lot of bad dictators and replaced them with, you tell me, a better situation? I don't know. I, I think not. Probably in uh, Tunisia, is uh, maybe the exception. And an interesting thing about Tunisia, that was the one place where we didn't go in all heavy-handed. The slightly more democratic forces that came into power were not seen as American spies or agents. So I wanted to ask you about, it was also reported that President Trump was considering, and I don't know exactly what that means, an attack on the Iranian nuclear facility of uh, Natanz was the report. Do you know anything about how strong his consideration was and who might have dissuaded him from such an attack? What I understand, it was basically a question. It was like, are we in a position to attack? You know, he wants to go out in office with a bang, right? And also, Biden's going to be too cowardly to do this, so let's get this thing over with. What about attacking it? Could we do that? And as I understand it, all of his advisors said no. I mean, Pence, Pompeo, the military people, O'Brien, everybody. There wasn't a single advisor who said, yeah, boss, that's a great idea. They all said, no, it might not work. And besides, if it did, it's going to spark a widened war, which I don't even think Trump wants. Now, does that mean that he therefore put it out of his mind? Or did he go have a nice conversation with, with Bibi Netanyahu and see what Bibi thought about it? I, I don't know. One thing that we've learned about Trump that kind of came as a pleasant surprise is that he, he turns out not to be a guy who's itching for war. He's had some opportunities. He didn't go there. Now, that doesn't mean he might not stumble into one or be used as the patsy for somebody else who's itching for a war. And, you know, we've still got, what is it, eight weeks to go, something like that? A lot can happen. Back in the days of Franklin Roosevelt and before, the next president didn't take office until March. <laughs> Yeah, travel time has saved us from a couple of weeks of... What about plans, and this seems more concrete, and he has more agreement on this, plans to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, you see different numbers, and in fact, one of the more recent quote-unquote plans to withdraw, I think, takes troops from 3,000 to 2,500, so it wouldn't be that huge of a with. So tell me what your reporting shows is really going on with what he wants to do and what the generals are advising and allowing him to do. Well, see, this is it. This shows that even when his instincts are pretty good, he's not a strong leader. Well, from the time he came into office, 
He said, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. We're going to pull out. And then at the time, Secretary of Defense Mattis and his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, made this big case that, no, no, boss, we've got a new strategy and it could provide victory. So let's not do it now. In fact, you put in more. And you might remember he went on TV to say, oh, I, I don't usually change my mind, but these guys have convinced me it's worth another chance. Well, there was nothing neither new. There was nothing either new or victory bound about this strategy they, they laid on him. He's had opportunities ever since to do it, but he keeps getting talked out of it or rolled, slow rolled. And yeah, this time mm -hmm. he said, let's pull out everybody from Afghanistan. And then this got changed to reducing the number of troops in Afghanistan and Iraq to a total of 2,500, then 2,500 each. And so, yeah, it's not a big deal. Things are going to pretty much remain the same. You know, Obama toward the end wanted to pull everybody out, but he realized it's nice to have a, a counterterrorism base in that part of the world. And so, you know, he decided to keep a few thousand as well for that reason, having nothing to do with the original plan to, you know, nation build Afghanistan. So it's, it's, a, it's a very hard thing just to say, let's pull everybody out when everybody around you is, is telling you otherwise. And even if you do, you know, the, the Pentagon, one thing the Pentagon is very good at is slow rolling making it seem ridiculously more expensive. Remember when, when Trump wanted to have a big parade, 4th of July parade right. with tanks down, you know, Pentagon didn't want to do this. And they said, oh, well, this is going to cost like $80 million or something like that. <laughs> and it wasn't going to cost $80 million. But although when, when the Pentagon gives you a price estimate on the high side, I mean, they do have some experience in that. Oh, <laughs> that is plausible. It's plausible. Cost overruns, everything else. But, yeah, yeah. But they have a lot of ways of, of doing things or not doing things that they've been pushed to do that they don't want to do. Right. And so the levels now are somewhere like 3,000 or so troops yeah. in Iraq yeah. and maybe, maybe 5,000 in Afghanistan. The mission is not going to change. The mission, you know, we're not, U.S. troops are not, I think maybe eight Americans died in Afghanistan all this year. Uh, yeah. which is eight more than there should have been. But still, we're not out there doing a lot of fighting. It, it's training, it's equipping, it's advising, it's providing intelligence, logistics, and, and it's counterterrorism stuff, going after, you know, Al-Qaeda and stuff like that, which you could say maybe we should be doing even if we were never involved in Afghanistan in the way that we, we were. So, and Biden, when he was vice president, when they were having their nine, when Obama was having his nine National Security Council meetings on what to do in Afghanistan, Biden was the only one who opposed the big surge and moving to a major counterinsurgency strategy. He wanted to have a few thousand to train the Afghan army and to go after terrorists. Well, was he right back then? Yeah, he I mean, was. back then. Yeah, he was. And in fact, after Obama gave this thing 18 months and then retracted it after 18 months because it wasn't working. Everybody was making fun of Obama, of Biden at the time, but he, he was the only one who was right. So does this, the, his ineffectiveness, does it say more about Trump's ineffectiveness and follow through, or does it give some credence, even though Trump puts it bluntly, to the idea of, if not the deep state, entrenched interests that 
act uh, beyond the democratic reach of our democratically elected leaders. And I guess there's a third category, which is all the rational people like the fact that Mattis and others were there as the adults. Maybe it's just the adults being adults. So just assess that. In principle, a president wants to move troop levels Mm -hmm. to a place that he promised and the public agrees with and might be a good idea, and he can't do it and is thwarted. How much should we worry about that? Well, look, I mean, you know, Jesus, take read any book on bureaucratic politics. You know, you don't need to talk about deep states. Yeah, they're entrenched bureaucratic interests. Now, what do you do about entrenched bureaucratic interests? You appoint people to head the department or agency who will follow your orders and yet who knows something about the place and knows who the entrenched interests are and how to maneuver around them. This is another subject entirely, but I mean, this is why I think Michelle Flournoy would be a really good Secretary of Defense for Biden. She knows the building. If Biden wants to say, okay, Michelle, we need to cut the defense budget by 10% without, without wrecking anything, she would know how to do that. She knows everybody. She's widely respected. She would know, she knows a way around the budget and everything else. You get in somebody, I, I can only think of one outsider Secretary of Defense who made any impact on the building, and that was Robert McNamara back under Kennedy. And that's because he came up with a whole new method of analysis, systems analysis, which took the generals by surprise and they were sidestepped. Meantime, they learned how to do systems analysis too. So there's not been a single outsider Secretary of Defense since then who hasn't been rolled by the generals. You know, that's what Biden is worried about, getting rolled by the generals. He should put a a smart, simpatico insider at that job. Yeah. Trump was maybe good at branding, but he has so little attention to details. He could do nothing except rail about the deep state. And maybe that's all he ever wanted was the issue, not the solution. What he wanted to do, and he did it. Remember uh, when... uh, Bannon talked about destroying the administrative state. That's what mm-hmm. he did. He, he denuded it. People left. He didn't replace them for months. There were like no assistant secretaries of state or defense for crucial issues. And by the way, Mattis, he was pretty terrible too. He, he had no idea of how to draw on the, the civilian talent in the Department of Defense. He only listened to his own small circle of, of fellow army officers that he brought in with him. He colluded, whether willingly or not, in in the defunctionalization of the Department of Defense. So right now, there is nobody in the senior levels of of government who who would have any idea how to do this in in any department. It takes a generation to build this kind of talent. Fred Kaplan is the author of the War Stories column at Slate, and his book is The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Thanks again, Fred. Thank you. now the spiel. No longer affiliated with Trump attorney Sidney Powell and still held in high esteem by Trump, but not officially affiliated attorney Lynn Wood held a rally in Alpharetta calling for the state of Georgia to undo the results of the vote. And you know what? Just send a Trump elector slate to vote for him in the Electoral College. You know, it's a little convoluted. Never made much sense in the first place. Maybe it sounds better this way. The devil went down Georgia. He was looking for some votes to steal. He wore a MAGA hat, but aside from that, you wonder, what's his deal? We're not gonna vote on your damn machines made in China. Now the devil, he addressed the crowd, and he said some wild crap. He said he hated China and something about algorithms, and he was gonna take our country back. 
Unmasked and undeterred by facts, he was preaching to the chorus. He warned us about the Venezuelans and then yelled, We're going to send that message to George Soros. Get out of our country, George Soros. He then said, Now, Kelly Leffler, you know, it would be a sin if you and Purdue do what you do instead of helping Trump to win. He said, And if they do not do it, if Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue do not do it, they have not earned your vote. Don't you give it to them. This was an argument that the Georgia Republicans do not want to hear. This is their nightmare that the Trump diehards punish their Senate nominees for not aggressively attempting to disenfranchise voters. On the other hand, if you are Purdue or Leffler or their campaigns, you know you need the enthusiasm of MAGA Nation. It's quite a pickle, isn't it? You know the Leffler and Purdue teams will try to beseech Trump, please stop this messaging. What can I do? He will say, wood doesn't even work for me. We even put out a statement distancing ourselves from Sidney Powell. Of course, he loves it. And of course, it's quite clear that Sidney Powell is still held in somewhat high regard for defending the honor of Michael Flynn. Trump just gave Michael Flynn a pardon. And of course, the spirit of the great military commander, Michael Flynn, was alive and well right there on the head and at the heart of Lynn Wood in the Georgia rally. We're going to fight like a Flynn. Fight like a Flynn. And when we do, and we will, we'll fight like a Flynn. And we're going to make America great again. Now, maybe you heard in that clip there was a little bit of a mic pop. What happened was, at that moment, Lynn was wearing a, a Michael Flynn hat, a black Flynn hat, I guess available for purchase, and he whips it off his head and then replaces it with the classic red MAGA hat. It's the words and pictures working together. What showmanship? You gotta wonder what the effect of all this is. Who could possibly be happy with Lynn Wood holding this rally? Not Purdue, not Leffler, not Georgia Governor Kemp. Maybe there's just one national Republican who is pleased. And the president, he chuckled because he knew he can't be beat. All the losses and the embarrassments could be laid at someone else's feet. And that's why the big guy's hinting that in 2024 he'll run again. I done told you once, you son of a bitch, I'm the worst there's ever been. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the producer of The Gist. And a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He wants the stats on how many horses chase the dogs that eat the cats that kill the birds that avoid the windmills that are made in China. I don't know why they were made in China, but my curiosity is minor. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She is not worrying about the idea that we need to win with Flynn so much as the reality that we've besmirched the idea of democracy as symbolized by the Acropolis with Papadopoulos. The gist if I were giving a speech to the graduates of the Tehran School of Physics, I would say, guys, I want to try string theory or patent attorney. How about that? Might be a nice, safe patent attorney. No remote control machine guns waiting out back for a mid-level patent attorney. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.